so he's he's put in there implausibility and bizarre to sort of allow for him to put things in the realm of impossibility that are not impossible, but they just sound strange to him. And then that in turn allows him to say about any particular religion or characterize Christianity in the most uncharitable terms and say, that sounds weird, right? Well, then it goes in our third criteria. When it doesn't go in your third criteria, your third criteria is it's impossible. Well, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. And today we're gonna to be answering the question of whether or not Christians are delusional. And we'll be relying on the help of Richard Carrier to make the case that Christianity Christians are delusional, at least in some sense. Now, um, I usually say in my videos that I really like this guy or I, something positive about them. I don't really know enough about Richard Carrier. I've listened to a lot of his debates over the years. Um, I have friends who know him, but I don't personally know enough about him to say whether I like him or not. I can tell you this, he's good in front of a crowd. Um, he seems affable and he is certainly a hero to many people who don't believe Jesus ever existed. Um, so he's got some power of persuasion. And I can say that at the very least. But what we're going to do in this uh, video is we're going to take a look at the question, are Christians delusional, and a few other things that are relevant or not relevant but get thrown into the mix. And uh, I'm going to, this is my hypothesis, is that even using Richard Carrier's own uh, principles or criteria for determining whether someone is delusional, uh, Christianity is not in the least bit delusional. So you'll see that pretty early on in the video, but then there's a lot of other topics that come up that I think we'll have fun talking about. So glad that you're here and let's move forward and begin listening to Richard Carrier. Let's begin. Uh, the topic of my talk today is, are Christians delusional? Let's find out. Uh, first, we've got to define terms. What do we mean by delusion? Uh, there's the colloquial sense of delusion, which is a, a false belief or opinion. For example, he has delusions of grandeur is a common phrase. Um, I'm not talking about that. Uh, the other is from psychiatry, which is a false belief that is resistant to reason or confrontation with actual fact. Now, there's a politically correct version of this psychiatry, psychiatric term. Okay, so now here's the definition he really wants to take apart and then go with, with the exception of one phrase uh, smack in the middle of the definition. So pay close attention. Term uh, that you'll find in actual diagnostic models that makes an exception for religion without actually telling you that's what it's doing. Uh, and this is the actual formal definition. A false belief based on an incorrect inference about external reality that is firmly sustained despite what almost everybody else believes. Notice that insertion there and despite what constitutes incontrovertible and obvious proof or evidence to the contrary. Now I want you to take that bit in italics and take it out, and let's just read the definition, the formal psychiatric definition, a false belief based on an incorrect inference about external reality that is firmly sustained despite what constitutes incontrovertible and obvious proof or evidence to the contrary. Obviously, if you take that little section out, that little uh, italicized part, you still are talking about a delusion. I mean, it's quite clearly that's what we're talking about here. Just because you have everybody in the room is deluded doesn't mean suddenly it's no longer a delusion. Uh, you just have a whole room is deluded. Uh, and so anyway, so I'm going to not use the politically correct definition. I'm going to talk about... Oh, I'm sorry. He's not going to use that. He's going to make it much simpler than that. Okay, so, so my apologies. That's not the uh, definition he's going to use, but he wanted to make you relevant and make, it, uh, make you aware of it. So he's giving you the colloquial definition, the psychiatric definition, the politically correct definition... Uh, not sure how it's politically correct. And then we're going to actually now go on to look at what he wants to use, I think. Uh, just the basic definition, a false belief that is resistant to reason or confrontation with actual fact. 
And I'll say that not all false beliefs are delusions. There's lots of different kinds of false belief, and I could give a whole lecture on all the different kinds. But I'm only going to talk about one delusion as one particular kind of false belief. And for a false belief to be a delusion, it has to, have, it has to meet these three criteria, all three. The first is certainty. It has to be held with absolute conviction. If you're kind of wishy-washy about it, it doesn't really qualify. It also has to have incorrigibility. That means it's not changeable by compelling counterargument or proof to the contrary. And that's one of the, like, the key features of delusion. And the third criterion is impossibility or falsity of content. In other words, it has to be implausible, bizarre, or patently untrue. Okay, now let's, let's pause right here because as we're considering whether Christianity is a delusion, uh, he says, now you may want to run the video back and listen to what he said again so you hear him saying it, that in order for something to qualify as delusion, it has to meet all three, not one, not two, all three of these criteria, okay? So um, I maintain that for most of the types of Christians that he's probably, that are probably going to read Richard Carrier's material or watch a video like this, um, they don't fall into any of these. But uh, anyway, the, the, you can't just have one or two. It has to be all three. He's pretty clear about that. So the question we're going to have to answer here as the video rolls on is, does Christian, is, is, the, is, is Christianity properly held something that is held with absolute conviction? Now, he's already ditched colloquial definitions here. So when he says certainty, we're taking him to mean absolute certainty. I mean, it says there, absolute conviction of this. So this is like Cartesian certainty, like you're as certain of this as you are of your own existence or something, you know. Um, encourageability, not changeable by compe compelling counter argument or proof to the contrary. So, um, so, so far we've got a person that he thinks is, is you know, your Christian that um, has Cartesian certainty about God and some claim to. Um, that nothing would convince them otherwise, even pr even absolute proof would not convince them otherwise. And then lastly, uh, it, it's uh, the belief that's being held is impossible or false. And the way you know that is it's implausible, uh, implausible more likely not to be true than, than to be true. Uh, bizarre, well, there's a lot of things that are actually true that strike us as very bizarre. I mean, have you ever heard these atheists drone on about quantum mechanics and the weird stuff that goes on there, uh, get them to start talking about the uh, how they think it's possible that we could have a past infinite universe or that the universe came to exist from absolutely nothing, as some people hold. Uh, you get them talking about this stuff, you get some really bizarre stuff. So I guess we should ditch that and consider it delusional. Well, of course not. There's a lot of bizarre things that actually are true, not that those things are true. Uh, and then patently untrue, well, that's the very thing we're trying to get to the bottom of with Christianity. So uh, so here we have it. And by the way, implausible and bizarre don't get you to impossibility, right? Um, I agree that we should believe things that are plausibly true, more likely to be true than false. But that doesn't mean there are things that are, there are things that are, from our perspective epistemologically, less likely to be true than false from our perspective but that doesn't mean they're impossible, and sometimes those things turn out to be true, right? So anyway, uh, I think I said that right. So you've got this criteria here. He says it has to fit all three of them, and so we're going to move forward and see whether Christianity passes the test uh, or whether it's delusional. Now, um, there are different kinds of delusion. <laughs> now, I've got the screen cut off just below number four. 
Uh, number five is a colloquial term that's popular now, which is, I'll just say it this way, and forgive me if you think this is uncouth, but bat crap insane. He uses the expletive there. So um, that so he's got ranging one to five to, we could just say, mildly delusional, majorly delusional, worrisome, crazy, and insane. Let's keep going. Delusion comes in many degrees. Here you got my official Dr. Carrier delusion scale. Uh, you go from mildly delusional. Now, we all are mildly delusional. Uh, actually, psych psychology has proven that we all harbor a variety of different kinds of mild delusions. Uh, guys often think they're hotter than they are. Women often think they're less hot than they actually are. Okay, now stop right there. We are at minute 649. I'm gonna try to remember that so we can get back to it easily. But let's go back to his three uh, criteria. And let's take a look. Now, he just said people are, now he's trying to show that there's some things that are mildly delusional and some things that are majorly delusional. Now, he's just said people thinking that they're hot or not hot. Um, uh, they could be delusional in either case. Okay, well, if someone thinks that they're not hot, like if someone doesn't think they're physically attractive or at least not very physically attractive, do they hold that with absolute certainty? Well, some do, some don't. Um, people that think that they are absolutely beautiful, you know, are, are they holding that with absolute certainty? Well, some do, some don't. Um, but most of those people have serious doubts about it at some point or other uh, because we're constantly thinking about ourselves, whether we like to admit it or not, and we're thinking about how other people view us, and things that people say about our physical attractiveness can be very helpful or harmful to our day. And so uh, do, we, do, people, do most people hold that with absolute certainty? I don't think so. Encourageable, not changeable by compelling uh, counter-argument or proof to the contrary. Uh, Maybe that's the case, but I don't know about that. Now, what about the impossibility or falsity of content? Well, the problem there is that people's attractiveness level is a subjective uh, issue. It's not objective. It's it's uh, uh, we could get into issues of of objectivity of beauty and all those sorts of things. But leaving that off the table for a moment, let's just say that um, that's subjective. That's a matter of opinion, so it doesn't even qualify for the third one. And remember, he has to have all three in order for something to be. Uh, delusional. Now, you might say, well, maybe that's why he says it's mildly delusional. No, he can't mean that because he said for it to be delusional at all, it has to hit all three of these. So what he what he must mean by mildly delusional, if he's being consistent, is that it does hit all three, but it's just a more of a trivial issue. It doesn't affect the world in any major way. So someone's uh, beliefs about religion are huge worldview issues, whereas someone's opinion about how they look physically, that's not really like you know, gonna be the end of the world, right? So it's it's a mild delusion. It's not. It's kind of trivial. It's not that significant. Uh, but here, so but that would mean that even if something is going to be mildly uh, delusional, it still has to fit all three of these, and it doesn't. It can't even. It's category error, I think, to even say that it would. That the third category is even. Uh, appropriate to the discussion. So uh, already we're not making it very far in and already it's not a big deal. I'm just trying to show you that he's come up with something here that he thinks is going to uh, allow us to make determinations about um, whether Christian people are delusional and even the examples that he's given don't match his own criteria. So with that let's keep going. And they can actually show this with objective tests. They can have like everybody in the room look at your picture and rate how, how attractive you are and then have you rate how attractive you are, and you can see the difference between the average objective measure and, and your measure. And these are the kinds of models. It's an objective measure of what other people, a number of other people think 
It, it doesn't mean that, that it's actually objectively true. Uh, remember, subjective and objective things. Objective things are matters that we might think of as matters of fact, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. Uh, 2 plus 2 equals 7 is objectively wrong. Um, even if everyone else in the room thought that 2 plus 2 equals 7 was uh, true, they just all be wrong. So objective opinion, uh, objective facts don't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what opinions of people are, no matter the size of the sample. Uh, subjective things are matters of opinion. Um, so whether a particular person is beautiful, that person is beautiful. Well, it may be my opinion. It may not be the opinion of another person. As I've said many times before, are bald-headed, bearded men the most attractive kinds of men? As much as I wish that were objectively true, that they are, uh, I'm glad my wife thinks so, it's still subjective. So uh, you can't save it, Carrier. Mild delusions you have. One of the common ones is people overestimate how competent they are at a skill. And ironically, the less competent you are, the more you overestimate the comp your competence at the skill. And this is a universal thing. It's, a, it's the way our brains work. And, and Anyway, so there are mild delusions. Uh, then there are majorly. Now, again, what he must mean by mild delusions is that they hit all three of the criteria, but they're just not that significant, whereas major delusions hit all three, uh, and they're... Uh, but they are significant. That's, that's the only way to make sense of that because he did say something has to hit all three to be delusional at all. He didn't say to be majorly delusional, but to be delusional. Delusional people. There's people that get worrisome and then crazy and then, of course, get insane. Now, uh, for today, I'm only going to talk about the majorly delusional. I'm not talking about the worrisome Christians of the complete insane Christians. I'm going to talk about just ordinary majorly delusional Christians. I'm also not going to be talking about mildly delusional Christians. Now, let's... You do realize, and we'll get more into this later, that this is so affirming to the crowd. You know, you've got a crowd of skeptics here. This is Skepticon, some kind of conference. And it's so condescending, the way they're speaking about religion. I'm not going to talk about the really delusional, you know, the bat, you know, the bat crap crazy people. I'm not talking about the mildly delusional. I'm talking about your average run-of-the-mill, majorly delusional Christian. I mean, come on. Do you really think this is the way to win over Christians? I'll tell you, we'll, again, like I said, we'll get into this later, but it's really just an, an affirming to the crowd. It's, 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 it's kind of to the amen section of Skepticon. It's, it's you, listen, I'm a really smart guy up here telling you that those people are crazy, and you knew they were crazy, and now you got a really smart guy telling you that what you already knew was crazy, right? Uh, this is not the sort of a video that's really going to make that much of an impression on actual Christians, okay? Uh, and if it does, it shouldn't. So what are we talking about Christianity? Let's define Christianity here. Now, I can't take credit for this. I did not invent this quote. Uh, I don't know who the author is, so props to them, whoever they are. Uh, maybe someone can find out and blog it or something. Uh, but it's Okay, so let's read it. He's going to read the belief that some cosmic Jewish zombie can make you live forever if you symbolically eat his flesh and telepathically tell him that you accept him as your master. So he can remove an evil force from your soul that is present in humanity because a rib woman was convinced by a talking snake to eat from a magical tree. Okay, so you, you notice one of the things that I try to point out in these videos, and I haven't done it in a few videos, but one of the biggest, I think the biggest argument, you know, I'm doing a demon work right now, and uh, one of the, the thing that I'm doing research on, actual research, going out and, and doing surveys with large numbers of Christians in different parts of the country, and trying to see if we can increase their knowledge of and confidence level using Christian apologetics with other Christians uh, who are... Uh, experiencing worldview doubt, because that happens. It happens on both sides, by the way. Atheists experience doubt about their atheism. You should see the emails that I get, and Christians occasionally experience doubt. Worldview doubt is just a f part of being human. 
uh, and it's because there's so much on the line either way. So, uh, so anyway, the, the, the thing is, in doing that research, I, uh, I was putting together a PowerPoint presentation for a seminar that I was going to run, and I was listing out atheist arguments, arguments that atheism is true, that a particular person in the church might have encountered. And so I had up there, you know, arguments from evil, various kind, logical, evidential. Then I had like divine hiddenness arguments and things like this, incoherence arguments, omnipotence paradox, omniscience paradox, all these kind of things that atheists bring. And then it occurred to me, wait, whoa, 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 is this the most powerful that they have? Well, it may be the most intellectually potent, uh, say the argument, the evidential argument from evil, in my opinion, is probably the most intellectually potent argument that they have. We still have answers for it. Uh, but as, as I thought about that, I thought, you know, I don't actually think so. I think in terms of persuasion, in terms of actually evangelizing for atheism, in terms of reaching everyday people who go on YouTube and look at a video like this and reaching them, it's mockery. It's not even an argument. It's mockery. Mockery is the most potent thing. Uh, when I talk to people who are experiencing doubt, uh, who are listening to YouTube atheists and then listening to Christian apologists, they're always happy to say the Christian apologists give all these arguments and evidence and reasons. And, and, but, but it's just the fact that they, that they say this with such confidence and such boldness and they just, they, they make it sound, you know, ridiculous or whatever. Yes, that's mockery. And it plays on the fact that none of us wants to feel stupid. None of us wants to feel like we were sold a bill of goods. And in, especially in Western culture, most of what makes it in the entertainment world and, and those sorts of things are more objectively based in science and natural sciences and stuff like that. And so when you start talking about what most of the history of the world understood was true, which is that there are non-material things and that there is a God or gods out there, that there are supernatural forces at work, that sounds a little bit silly, but it only sounds silly in the context that you have been fed for many, many years now living in the West. And uh, you don't want to feel stupid. And so as a result, they are um, uh, people like this are able to play on that with mockery. And so that's a, that's a big motivator. But here's the thing. Mockery can go either way. So I could happily say back to Richard Carrier something like, and, and if not every one of these things hits you as, as an atheist, there are atheists that hold all these things. I could say something like, oh, yeah, okay, um, I'm going to believe in uh, uh, some sort of a naturalistic atheistic worldview. Yeah, uh, nothing plus nothing caused everything in some massive cosmic explosion. And somehow, magically, you had first life that nobody understands. By the way, nobody's ever seen that happen. And it was molecules to man evolution. Uh, and, you know, I once was a tadpole with tail on the end, and then I was a frog in keeping with trend. I then was a monkey swinging from a tree, and now I'm a college professor with a PhD. And, I mean, you, could, you can make everything sound absolutely absurd. You know, someone who is a young earth creationist who uses language like that all the time is someone like Kent Hovind. They, he uses that sort of language all the time. Uh, I don't share... Uh, you know, those, a lot of those views that Kent Hovind shares. And I certainly wouldn't approach it that way. Why? Because it's offensive to the people that you should be trying to reach, number one. But secondly, I want to point out that it goes either way. It goes either way. And you say, you know what you would say to me back? You'd say, well, you know, that you just gave a caricature of it. it there's actually a whole lot more to say about that. It doesn't sound as silly as you just made it sound. Granted, I agree. And you know what? When you look at something like this statement in front of us here, it's not like it sounds. It's just, this is just, uh, 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 what do we call it? This is just mockery. 
So let's go through it. The belief that some cosmic Jewish zombie. Now, the throwing in the term Jewish, which is an ethnicity that we are very much familiar with, uh, and so we, you know, some of us know Jewish people, so it sounds a little bit silly to us because we know people uh, that some Jewish zombie, and then zombie. The use of the term zombie, a zombie is the Walking Dead. But is that what Christianity teaches about Jesus? No, Jesus is um, a uh, risen, uh, glorified body, very much alive. Um, and if that sounds strange to you, what about these atheists that believe that the universe came into existence from absolutely nothing, or that the universe is past infinite? But just go with the universe came into existence from nothing. Is that uh, is that less uh, crazy in a complicated way? Uh, no, that's more crazy in a complicated way. In fact, I would say Jesus being risen from the dead is not crazy because if you have a God who can create the universe, then you have a God who raising Jesus from the dead is small potatoes for him. So you've got the presupposition of naturalism, the use of the term Jewish, and the use of the term zombie that are all working together to make this sound silly. Can make you live forever. Yes. Did you know there are naturalistic atheists who are right now working on ways to make people live forever? Go research it. If you symbolically eat his flesh and tell... Okay, first of all, this this uh, uh, is an issue of obedience. It's not about... You know, the, besides, there are various... Uh, brands of Christianity, this idea that uh, there's a workspace salvation that you have to keep taking of these elements in order to sustain your salvation isn't even what at least a lot of the Christians that Richard Carrier is trying to impact even believe. Um, and telepathically tell him that you accept him as your master. Okay, now there he's talking about prayer. Okay, uh, you know, the fact is the vast majority, uh, you know, I'm not saying that prayer is true because of this, but if we're talking about something sounding crazy, the vast majority of the history of the world believes in prayer. It's only like 2% uh, atheists in the world, and most of those are alive today, who have believed that prayer is some kind of a ridiculous thing. Again, if there's a God who created the universe from nothing, he probably doesn't have trouble hearing your prayers, okay? Uh, you tell him that you accept him as your master. Okay, good. So he can remove an evil force from your soul that is present in humanity. Okay, he can forgive your sins because we're all sinners. Um and that shouldn't really be all that controversial, whether you want to call it or sin, uh, being sinful or not. The most, most people today, atheists or otherwise, recognize that people do crummy things, right? People are broken. Uh, we call that sin in Christianity. And yes, we think that this Jesus that God raised from the dead is able to uh, forgive us of that, right? Okay, sorry you don't like that, but there's nothing about it that's that silly. Uh, and he's present in humanity because a rib woman was convinced by a talking snake to eat from a magical tree. Okay, so because uh, the first woman, and there's stuff we could talk about with this rib and just really the word side there that uh, was, conv was convinced by a talking snake. Yes, and we're not talking about Disney here. Uh, we believe in supernatural forces at work. And a super could a supernatural force communicate? It doesn't mean that he has to move the vocal cords of the snake to eat from a magical tree. There, the use of the term magical to play on your past history understanding with that from card tricks and illusionists and people like that, that magic isn't really real. But um, supernatural? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with supernatural. Some Christians object to the use of the term supernatural, but I use it to parallel or to uh, to give the other side of the fact that uh, the universe coming into existence from a state of timeless nothingness, whatever caused it not being in space in time or made of matter would not be natural because those are the things we mean when we say natural. So whatever you think, if you think that the whole cause had a beginning, then you already have to think that something that is not 
the stuff of nature did that. I call that supernatural. So the idea that supernatural stuff is going on is an okay explanation. Yeah, I think so. And as a reasonably well-educated person, I think I've got good reason for that. So you see here, uh, you can deconstruct what's been said. Now, you still may think, okay, so the idea that God came in the flesh to pay uh, for the sins of the world because as a just God, as a good God, he would have to be a just God, otherwise he's not a good God. So there has to be a penalty paid. But he loved us enough that uh, God came in the flesh and paid the price for us out of his great love and that all this happened because God created the world uh, that we live in, that's not that strange. If you don't like that, well, then you just don't like that. That's fine. If you don't find it persuasive, then you don't find it persuasive. But when you put it in terms like this, uh, it's to create the least charitable reading of what's actually happening. And the reason you would do something like that is, again, to affirm to the audience what they already hold. This was at uh, an atheist conference, as I say. And any Christian who hears this is going to say, wait a minute, you have really not expressed this the way that most of us would express it. Now, one might say, well, yeah, but the point of doing that is to illustrate to the Christian that if you strip away all the religiously informed terminology and just call it like it is, it sounds crazy. Uh, yeah, but the religious, religiously informed language, the theological language, the uh, academic language that we use on these things are there for a reason because they uh, communicate larger concepts that you weren't able to fit into a little pithy paragraph like this. Okay, so this is just mockery and it's the best that atheists can do. And frankly, I'm glad it's the best that they can do. And there really isn't a single proposition in there that your average Christian can honestly deny. Yeah. Uh, no, we would. There are things there that sound somewhat, in a weird way, like uh, the Christian story, like a like a bad parody of the Christian story. But just going off of the inaccurate use of the term zombie, when we're that's a walking dead person. When we're talking about a person who is alive, in fact, in a way that we are not even alive right now, um, that is a very different concept. So yeah, I can deny your propositions. Yeah, that's what we believe. What can I say? Now, though, there are, there are a lot of Christians now who've really taken a lot of flack for that, and so we've come out with a new improved Christianity of the late, maybe last 50 years or so, where they admit, okay, all that Eve stuff is baloney, the rib woman, talking snake, okay, maybe that's all myth. But I still have an imaginary friend who magically manipulates the world for me, and he Notice again the use of the term magic, again, playing on your history of understanding the term magic to be what illusionists or magicians who use trickery do, and that the real concept of, like, Disney magic doesn't really exist. Also magically impregnated a woman 2,000 years ago, and she bore him a son who underwent an ancient ritual of blood sacrifice in order to dispel a curse laid upon me, thus ensuring I will be immortal, although I've never seen this work for anyone else before. So that's and now, what do you mean? The only thing in there that we would have direct access to uh, to demonstrate to others would be something like answered prayer. And I've had many, many, many prayers answered. I may have shared this in a previous uh, episode, but uh, in fact, you know, this is the thing. When you've lived a lifetime of Christianity, which I haven't even yet, but for many, many years, and you've had chance to follow the biblical parameters for prayer and see if they work, I'm, I can fairly confidently tell you that, that when I have, not every time, but most of the time that I follow the biblical parameters for prayer, like not praying for selfish gain, praying in the name of Jesus, which means in accordance with things that he would want, praying according to the will of God, you know, these sorts of things. When I've done that, uh, my prayers have, you know, overwhelmingly been answered. 
Not always, because I can't see what he sees. Maybe it's not in my best interest or the best interest of the kingdom for him to always answer all of my prayers. Uh, but overwhelmingly, I have him answered. And when you see that happen again and again and again and again and again and again, uh, you, you, just, you just hear people say, well, prayer doesn't work. And you just think, man, if you only knew. I mean, you're speaking from a position of absolute ignorance on this. And I don't say that to be rude. I just say it to be clinical about it. I've experienced it. Uh, give you a really good, obvious example. This is what I was saying I may have shared before, that when I was pastoring and uh, I was really trying to reach our community, and I would always pray. We had some really good Sunday school teachers, and they were doing a real good job in their class, great discussions. And I felt like people got as much out of that as they did out of the service, the main service on Sunday morning. And we had uh, two services. We were really growing. God was really blessing. A lot of people coming to Christ. And I would go up to the office, which was in a house up above where the church was, and I would uh, pray um, f for God to, you know, uh, whatever he needed to do to prompt people, uh, you know, motivate people, convict people to come to Sunday school because I really wanted to go to Sunday school. And I would stand up there and watch the parking lot and see who was filling in, you know, down there at the church. And I would pray, and often I would pray for a number that was reasonable but higher than it had been, and I would pray for a specific number. I'd say, Lord, I pray that we would have at least, you know, 247 in Sunday school today, you know, whatever. And uh, it got that the prayer was answered so specifically so many times that normally when I would go down from that house where the offices were to the church before church started, um, the Sunday school director who had those numbers would have it written down on a piece of paper. This became our custom. And he'd come and say, what number did you pray for? 247. And many times, I can't say every time, but many, many times he would show me and it was 247, exactly what I had prayed for. I got smarter because later on an older minister said, well, you're doing it wrong. Don't pray for a specific number. Say, instead of saying, Lord, please let us have 247, say, let us have at least 247 today. And so I started doing it that way. Why limit what, what you know, your prayers, right? So the, the fact of the matter is that may sound silly to you. And if it does, I uh, can't help you. I just know that that's just a very simple example of the many prayers that I've seen answered uh, in my life. And Christians can attest to that. If you haven't seen that happen yet, I would encourage you to do a study of prayer and see what does the Bible say about prayer? About prayer? What are the biblical parameters for prayer? Um, and then start praying according to those. Also making sure that you're right with God when you pray those prayers. And, uh, and just watch what happens and give it a period of time and, and just notice. Because I think uh, that you'll see that, that there's power in prayer. And, and I think that's true. Uh, so let's see. So so that's in this list, that's the thing that you could actually, you know, and, and what do you mean? Although I've never seen this work for anyone else before. I've seen it work for me and I've certainly seen it work for others. So this is just false. That's, that's what we're dealing with. That's Christianity. That's the belief that we're going to test. Is that a delusion? Now, there are varieties of Christians as well. Um, there's nominal apathetic. Now, the answer, he said, is it a delusion? Well, in a minute, we're going to go back to those three criteria he laid out and see whether it's a delusion. Uh, not the caricature that he presents, but the actual state of affairs as you are, you have a Christian sitting before you right now who can tell you. And we're going to look also at the types of Christians he thinks are uh, uh, moderately uh, delusional and majorly delusional and see. Christians, Christians who just say they're Christian but don't really believe any of it um, or don't even care whether it's true or not. Uh, I'm not talking about those Christians today. There's also Christians who are, yeah, I don't really know if it's true. It's a sort of a metaphor or something. Uh, they have different kinds of ideas, very liberal Christians that you can often have a really hard time trying to pin them down on what actually they believe. 
Uh, I'm not talking. Now, I agree with him. I, I want to talk to the people that's, that, that believe in a, what we would call a theologically conservative Christianity. However, let me just say that um, when it says things like it's true as told, uh, we need to be clear whether we're talking about there it's true as told. Uh, is he mean a literal reading of everything in the Bible? Because we really have to be careful with genre and what sort of uh, a genre is this. We're going to see more of this later. But are we talking about uh, are we talking about poetry? Are we talking about uh, narrative? Are we talking about apocalyptic language? Are we talking about um, uh, you know biography? What sort of things are we talking about? Because that it may be true. It may be true. Like if if the Bible says you know something like the four corners of the earth or the sun rises or something like that. We use that language now. We'd say the sun rises. We say, well, yeah, the sun didn't actually rise, but we understand that we mean from our perspective, it looks as though it's rising. So we say the sun rises and sets, rises and falls. We, we, you wouldn't say, oh, well, you're wrong. You're factually wrong because the sun doesn't rise. No, no, no. You know what you mean. It's a figure of speech. Well, even more so with poetry. So if you're going to say something like, it's true as told, does what are you, because I've run, I run into atheists all the time and try to say that the Bible gets something wrong when it's not speaking scientifically, it's speaking poetically or something in the Psalms. And so I'm not comfortable with that, but I do agree with the sympathy, uh, the, uh, I, I, I sympathize with the sentiment, there we go, uh, that we want to talk about what, what about real Christians who are actually believing the Christian message, not people who are just nominal or saying the whole thing is a metaphor, okay? I'm not talking about those Christians either. <laughs> I'm talking about the Christians that, or the, it's true as told Christians. Uh, and, the, you know, the same ones who say it's all true uh, and Jesus is coming from outer space to kill you soon. Uh, that's actual... Again, notice the mockery and the uh, phrasing of things in the least charitable way to your position. Um, again, we could do that right back with evolution. We could do that right back with the multiverse. We could do that right back with the coming into the beginning of the universe from nothing, by nothing, for nothing. We could do it with the past infinite universe. We could do it with Richard Carrier's hair. We could do it with anything you want. All right. So you want to phrase things in charitable ways and then try to shoot that down Um not phrase them in the least imaginably charitable way, and then shoot that down. Polled results, 40% of the American public believes that, by the way. Uh, so we could talk about maybe about 60% of Christians are, the, it's true as told, but aren't so sure about when Jesus is going to come and kill us. But, you know. And there's also a split between what I call the mildly delusional and the majorly delusional Christians. And the mildly delusional ones have a personal belief in God, like God exists, and Jesus was a great guy. But they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they have room to move. They'll, 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 uh, they'll waffle a little bit on the divine issues of Jesus and so forth. Um, okay, so now I want you to notice we're at minute mark 1018. So I'm going to try to remember 1018. And we're going to go back to his three, uh, let's see, where are they? The three uh, things he's got here. So... Uh, the, the idea that Jesus is the Son of God and whatnot is supposed to be majorly delusional. Minorly delusional or moderately delusional, whatever, is uh, theism is true, uh, but uh, Jesus was just a nice guy. Okay, now, are either one of those things delusional? I think the first one is false, that Jesus was just a nice guy, if that's what he means. But um, are either of these positions delusional using Carrier's own definitions or criteria for what counts as delusional? Now, this is, I think, the golden nugget of this whole thing so far. And that is, okay, so uh, 
the kind of Christians who would listen to Richard Carrier and or watch a video like this one, like you who are watching who are Christians, uh, are overwhelmingly not going to hit all three of these. So what about certainty? Some Christians will hold to a Cartesian certainty about this. And I've even had little arguments with other Christians about uh, Cartesian certainty. I think Cartesian certainty is useless. Uh, Cartesian certainty is the belief, that is, is the level of certainty that, um, that uh, you're as certain, like, you know, Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. He thought that's the one thing he could have absolute certainty about. Um, some people even think that's wrong because uh, that requires you to trust your reason. Um, and how do you know that you're reasoning properly, right? So, um, but so some people say you can't be absolutely certain about anything. But let's just go with Descartes because most people call this level of certainty Cartesian certainty. That I think, therefore, I am. I can at least be absolutely certain of that. Some people would so you can be certain of your own existence, but you can't be certain about whether the room around you exists, uh, that you're not in the matrix. Uh, that Richard Carrier is a real person, you know, all those kind of things. We can't have absolute certainty about those things. Now, some Christians would say you can have absolute certainty about the truth of the Christian God. Uh, Presuppositionalists will argue that way. They'll say that it, it's something that is just communicated to you directly by God. The problem is, uh, for some people, the problem is that you have what's called as Descartes' evil demon. Now, how do you know there's not an evil demon out there convincing you that all of that is true um, and convincing you that you can be sure of that? So uh, who really cares if you can have absolute certainty? What I can have is meaningful certainty. What everyone means in everyday language when they say that they're certain of something. I'm certain that the, my condominium exists right now where I live, even though I'm not there right now. And it's theoretically possible that a plane crashed into it and it was destroyed while I'm at work today and just nobody called me. I, I'm reasonably certain that, that it exists, okay? Um, and, in, and I'm also certain that God exists, but I don't have Cartesian, the, I don't care for that Cartesian certainty. I think that's a useless concept uh, that he's implying here because he even puts here absolute conviction. Okay, but am I certain? Yeah, I'm certain. Okay, I can claim to know that God exists. So, uh, but I don't meet his meaning of certainty. So knock that one off. So I'm already not delusional. And I don't think most Christians are delusional in the way that he means it. Uh, incorrigibility, not changing, but changeable by compelling counter arguments or proof to the contrary. If, you know, people have uh, said evidence is what convinces reasonable men Proof is what should convince even unreasonable men. Well, with uh, this issue, if I was presented proof, now that would have to be some pretty solid evidence, some really strong proof. I mean, you would have to undo not only the theistic arguments that I think are beautiful and really powerful, you have to undo the resurrection case, all of the cumulative case elements that I think are there in a good abductive approach to this issue. Um, the, you know, I have to undo all of that and show me that that's not good evidence for God. Then you'd have to show me that my personal experience that that is accessible by me, but not necessarily accessible to you, like the prayer data that I had a while ago that I gave you, that you, you can't, you don't know that I'm telling you the truth, but it's accessible to me. I, so if you're going to convince me though, you'd have to undo all of that and show me that, that there's better, it's better explained by, I was confused about that or um, something else was going on. Neurons were firing wrong. I, I don't know. You'd have to somehow undo all of that. And that stuff is wrapped up inside of me really tightly. 
So, but if you undid all of that and gave me powerful evidence that amounts to proof, then yeah, I would have to no longer believe. And in past videos, I've given you my principles of falsification. You could falsify Christianity if Christianity were false. So it's not false, but if Christianity were false, you could perhaps show that it was false. And you could do that by perhaps showing something contradictory in the nature of God so defined by Christians. People try to do that with arguments from evil. Um, you could try to do it by uh, showing evidence that Jesus never rose from the dead. Um, you could perhaps produce, if, if, if they exist, you could produce uh, perhaps some documents written by disciples of Jesus that we had good reason to believe were, that were saying these guys are running around saying Jesus rose from the dead, but it's all bunk. It didn't really happen. You could produce the bones of Jesus. I, I, I don't know. Um, but these things would, if you could do them, they would falsify Christianity. They would show that it's false. It's, I don't believe it's false. But could I be convinced if, if it was proven? It'd be really, really hard given my experience, the level of evidence I've seen. But yeah, I'm, I, you could, I could, it could, if it's false, it could be proven to me that it's false. Um, impossibility, that's just the very thing that we're, that we're, that's under discussion. So that's, to say that it's impossible is begging the question. So um, yeah, I don't meet any of these. I'm not delusional. And I would, I would almost guarantee you that the majority of the Christians who would be reading one of Richard Carrier's books are aware of who Richard Carrier is, would be influenced by Richard Carrier, um, or whatever, don't fall into these categories. At least, at least one or more of them don't apply to them. So when we go back to, I think we said 1018, let's see here, 1018, something like that. Uh, and we look at these two claims, um, are they delusional? No. Now, again, you might say, well, he means by mildly delusional and majorly delusional. The majorly delusional people meet all three, and no, they don't, while the mildly delusional only meet one or two. But that's not what he said. He said for something to count as delusional, it has to hit all three. So I'm using his paradigm. And on his paradigm, these are not mildly delusional or majorly delusional. You know what we get instead from them? We get that um, uh, on personal theism, Jesus was a great guy. Uh, Richard Carrier uh, is mildly annoyed by that. And Jesus is truly the son of God and whatnot. Richard Carrier is majorly annoyed by that. So what we have here is the scale for uh, Richard Carrier's happy, happy split between mildly annoyed with Christians and majorly annoyed with Christians. But you don't get delusional even if you go with Carrier's own criteria. You know, they'll, they'll, they have room to move. They'll, 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 uh, they'll waffle a little bit on the divine issues of Jesus and so forth. Um, these kinds of happy-go-lucky Christians uh, I'm not going to be talking about today. I think that's kind of a mild delusion. It's kind of like somebody who thinks they can telepathic. All Christians are happy-go-lucky Christians. Well, that's probably not true, but they should be. They communicate with their pets. Um, it doesn't really hurt anyone. Uh, it's, you know, it's still, still a delusion, but, you know. I'm talking about that Jesus is truly the Son of God and whatnot, and that's what I mean by majorly delusional, uh, or at least I claim it's majorly delusional. Let's see if I'm right. That's right. You claim that. Now, what if someone came up to you and said that they have an imaginary friend named Zalmoxis? Oh, this is good. Who they insist is really real. He's not imaginary, in fact. And they'll never die because this ancient demigod cleansed their soul with blood magic, which grants them the power of living forever in a magical place no one can see. Now, you would immediately peg that as a delusion. It's bizarre, implausible, and patently untrue. And now, well, let's let him finish talking about Zalmoxis before I give an analysis. Zalmoxis' cult, in fact, is attested in Herodotus, the historian, in 425 BC, 500 years before Christianity. Let me take you back to that. That's a description of an actual religion practiced 500 years before Christianity and possibly still being practiced in the time Christianity was invented. 
looks very familiar, don't you think? Think about that. Another example I'm going to give you is the Heaven's Gate cult. Um, I'm sure a lot of you know about this cult. Uh, they believe that a spaceship was behind Comet Hale-Bopp that was going to come and rescue them and transfer their souls from their current shells, their current bodies, into new special bodies in the spaceship, and they were going to live, fly away and live forever in the spaceship. Uh, and they were so convinced of this belief that uh, some several dozen of them committed suicide, mass suicide. They're actually, not all of them did, by the way. There actually are still Heaven's Gators around, and they still believe this. Uh, thing it could rise up as a new, new, you know, the new Scientology in 50 years. Who knows? Uh, but their belief, I have to point out, it was based on the idea of getting new bodies in an alien spaceship flying by. We, we, we regard this as patently absurd, implausible, and bizarre. But it at least has all the elements of plausibility in the sense that spaceships are at least scientifically possible. And the idea of being having your body or having your your the information in your brain re-imprinted on another body that's actually better built than your current one is not only plausible in the sense that uh, it's physically possible, but we'll probably actually be able to do that within a thousand years' time of technological development. So they're not really that far out on the fringe, and yet we all recognize this is crazy, a crazy idea. Okay, now uh, he may say more on this topic, but I don't want to get too far away. We've got two samples or so here um, of those Heaven's Gate folks and the Zalmoxis religion. Now, um, he says, look, we can all look at this and see that it's patently delusional and crazy. Okay, first off, notice that he has moved away from the first two principles of criteria, and he's focusing primarily on the third one, which is impossibility. And he's modified the third one, he or whoever put that together, he's modified the third one such that he defines impossibility or falsity as um, it's implausible, it's bizarre, you know, those sorts of things. Well, it, does that mean if it's, if it's implausible or bizarre, again, that does not mean that it's impossible. So that, so he's, he's put in there implausibility and bizarre to sort of allow for him to put things in the realm of impossibility that are not impossible, but they just sound strange to him. And then that in turn allows him to say about any particular religion or characterize Christianity in the most uncharitable terms and say, that sounds weird, right? Well, then it goes in our third criteria. When it doesn't go in your third criteria, your third criteria is it's impossible. So that's, um, that's relevant. Now, what about Zalmoxis and Heaven's Gate and Scientology and these sorts of things? Well, uh, can we all just tell that those things are clearly false? I don't think so, but I, I'm not being a narrow-minded thinker about this. Now, I'm not implying that Richard uh, Carrier is, in general, a narrow-minded thinker, but in a group of people who laud themselves on being free thinkers, uh, then you, you shouldn't just narrowly define things down to what is demonstrable in science or what, uh, you know, what, what sounds weird gets culled away. Uh, unless, of course, it has to do with quantum stuff, then it's, then it's just okay for it to be weird. I'm sorry if I'm being snarky, but that's how I feel. So, no, what would I do? I'd be more of a free thinker. I'd be more open-minded. I'd say to someone who's purporting the Zalmoxis religion, I'd say, all right, well, lay out the evidence. What's your evidence for this? What good reason do I have to believe this? If you'll give it to me, I'll, uh, we can talk about it, right? Um, now, I didn't do that with Heaven's Gate, uh, and I don't plan to. Although on Trinity Radio, if you go back to early 2018, I think we did it with Raelianism, which is a very small uh, alien uh, UFO cult. We did it with the Ordo Templi Orientis, which is very small. Um, we did it with um, um, 
the, the David Koresh cult. We did it with, uh, we did it with a number of these weird cults. In fact, the episode's called Weird Cults. If you'll go look for it, you can hear our analysis of those things. So yeah, we actually do take them. We, we don't just brush them off. We say, okay, what do you got? Now, um, do I do that with every religion? I try to, but not probably not everyone. Something has to be relevant enough that I notice it or that it's kind of convincing some people before I start feeling like it needs a response. See, I, I believe for reasons that I could articulate in another video that if God exists, and I believe there's powerful arguments to believe that God exists, so much so that it blows my mind that people don't believe that God exists. Uh, but if you believe that God exists, then is it reasonable to think that he would try to interplay or communicate in some way with the persons that he created? Yeah, that's reasonable to believe. Can I prove it without a shadow of a doubt? No, but, but that seems reasonable to believe. Okay, well, if he did that, then, uh, then where would I go to look for, if, if it's God and if he created mankind wanting to communicate with them, where would I look? Well, a good place to look might be uh, the most dominant religions in the world. And so overwhelmingly, I've responded to the most dominant religions in the world when I've responded to other religious belief systems. Uh, however, when a belief system gets large enough that it gets adherence, even if, yeah, it sounds really weird, like Scientology, I'm still going to analyze it and take it seriously. I didn't take Scientology seriously for a long, long time. But whenever I saw that it was really getting a lot of traction in the culture, now, fortunately, it's dying. and It's almost on the way out. They've kept up the illusion of being very influential and powerful because they have a lot of real estate, really expensive real estate around the world. But that said, it's dying out. But when it was really popular and, and influencing people, um, I uh, had at least one conversation with a person who was a Scientologist. And... Um, I put together a study that was about two hours long on Scientology going through it. I still have the PowerPoint. And I teach, Scientolo I teach about Scientology in our uh, cults class where we look at cults here at uh, Trinity Seminary. So uh, I took it seriously, even though it was weird. So the answer to some, if you want to find the truth, you can't just say something's weird, so we're going to brush it off. Again, if we did that, we'd never know anything about um, the Higgs boson. We'd never know anything about quantum mechanics. We, we wouldn't discover a lot of the things that we discover. And uh, but, but you don't just brush something off because it's weird. You, you say, okay, what's the evidence? I'm going to look at the evidence. That's how reasonable people should approach these things, but not with this narrow-minded, I mean, come on, be more free thinkers about these sorts of things. So that's how I would approach any of these religions, I wouldn't just brush it off. And secondly, they're only delusional if they meet his three criteria. And we've gotten away from that now. And he's just calling stuff delusional. It sounds weird because he mixes it in, unfortunately, and falsely into that third category of impossible just because it sounds weird. Now, this is, compare this with what the Christians believe. They believe that they're going to get new bodies in a magical alternate universe. Okay. Uh, Christians believe in a resurrected new heavens and new earth. Um, we believe we're going to have resurrected physical bodies. Now, that may sound weird to some people, but again, don't brush things off because they sound weird. Brush them off because you've actually investigated them and you found that the evidence isn't compelling. That's the reason to disbelieve something, not because it sounds weird. I, feel, I, I know I sound like a broken record. I'm sorry. Uh, but no, we do not believe in some alternate universe like that, and we don't believe in magic. Um, that's not as plausible. There's no science to support this. There are no magical alternate universes that we've... Again, notice that we're just going to science. This happens with... I, I grant, I'm telling you, this has happened with, if not all, almost all of the atheists I've responded to in this series of response videos is this whole business about if science doesn't tell us something, if the lab coat priesthood doesn't tell us something, we shouldn't believe it. 
And uh, again, don't be so dogmatic. Don't be so narrow-minded. I thought that's what you thought the religious people did. Let's be more free thinkers. Let's let's actually analyze this thing openly and say, we're going to use all available uh, ways to get to knowledge, whether that be philosophy, experience, history, the natural sciences. You know, All these realms should be available to us, not just dogmatically hugging ourselves to science and believing what we're told. I didn't have any... Uh, evidence of. So actually, it's either the same belief or at least less plausible even than what the Heaven's Gate people believed. And their whole theory, they actually had it worked out as the idea of quantum teleportation and neural engineering, quantum teleportation of the information in their current... Now notice something here. We've just been talking about quantum stuff, and quantum stuff is among the weirdest stuff you will ever encounter ever, ever, ever. And he's saying, now, even though it all sounds really weird, hey, at least it's more realistic because it's using our weird stuff. And by our, I mean science, because science is the property of atheists. But it's, it's, uh, it's, it's our weird stuff, so it makes it more reasonable, even though it's as weird as anything else. Now, I'm not, I'm not uh, sliding quantum mechanics. I find it fascinating. And um, I think we're, you know, it's a pioneer field. It's a frontier field. But we're, we're finding out some really interesting things, and I'm fascinated by it, and I try to read up on it a lot. But I'm just saying, if you're talking about something's not credible just because it's weird, quantum stuff is really weird. Current brains to neurally re-engineer uh, the brains of their new bodies in the spaceship versus the Christian idea that God needs blood to fix the universe. Okay, uh, so this idea that God needs blood to fix the universe. Um, the shedding of Jesus' blood is, is because of, it's a sacrifice. We're talking about the sacrifice that Jesus made, okay? Um, that's the thing that's relevant here. And God doesn't need anything to do anything. It's that God is a good God. And if God is a good God, he's going to be just. And so there had to be a just penalty for sin. Fortunately, he's also a God of love. And so he took that. I feel like I've said that already this video. But only his own blood had enough magical power to do it. So he gave himself a magical. body and killed it. Okay, uh, this is a misunderstanding of the Trinity, m mistaking the, the uh, persons of the Trinity. Remember, the Trinity is one God who exists as three persons. So, uh, so you have, now that's not a contradiction. One God who exists as three gods would be a contradiction. One person who exists as three persons would be a contradiction. But one God who exists as three persons may be mysterious. I mean, you may not have all the answers you would like when it comes to that, but it's not contradictory. And uh, I used to have this problem when I was a kid. I used to think, wait a minute, Jesus praying to the Father, is that like just Jesus praying to himself? No, these are separate persons of the Trinity, but they share one essence, God. Now, if you'd like a good uh, uh, analogy for that, the historic Christian analogy that has stood the test of time is the triangle. A triangle has three distinct points. Each point is not the other point. They're separate points. They're distinct from each other, but they share one. They, they're all part of one triangle, right? So you have three uh, distinct points, one triangle. You have three persons and one uh, God. So I, 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 don't, I don't think this is too problematic. Um, yeah, um, I recently heard someone give a good analogy for this way to think about it, a thought experiment, is if you've ever seen the Back to the Future films in Back to the Future 2, uh, old Biff, Biff from the future, goes back and is sitting in a car having a conversation with young Biff uh, about the uh, about using uh, a sports almanac to win a bunch of money, so you have two uh, you you have uh, two persons present that have their own distinct experience, but they share one essence, Biff. Right, so we can actually see this happening. I mean, not that that is really going on, although guess what? People that affirm B theory of time have to believe that to a certain degree. Uh, so if you affirm B theory of time, there you go. <laughs> but if you don't, at least it serves as a good thought experiment that you can have. 
two persons and one essence. All right, have fun with that in the comment section. But the point is, uh, he's messed up the Trinity here, messed up the persons of the Godhead. If you can't get uh, Christian theology wrong and your aim is to successfully mock Christian theology, um, you, you can mock it, but when you mock it either dishonestly or out of ignorance, the whole thing falls apart anyway. So your mockery didn't get very far. Which one of these two religions makes more sense? So if the Zalmoxians and the Heaven's Gators were delusional, so are Christians. That's the point I'm trying to make here. Now, wait a minute. That's the point you're trying to make, but you didn't make the point even with the Zalmoxians. You certainly didn't make it with Christians. And now just to say, because there was one religion that was weird that we don't like, and you have another religion that you think is weird and you don't like, if one of them's false, the other one's false, I don't get it. That's like saying we got two bills here. One is a counterfeit bill. One is an actual $1 American currency bill. And they look, they look very similar to the naked eye. In fact, they look almost identical and they feel the same and everything. But we find out this one is a counterfeit. Oh, well, then they're both counterfeits. Wait, what? Where's the logic in this? No, they're not both counterfeits. One of them's the real deal. You can't say just because this one turns out to be false, that one turns out to be false. Come on, Carrier. Let's get with the program. Here. And so we've, we've nailed one of the top, one of the three requirements here. Impossibility or falsity of content. Implausible, bizarre, or... Uh, you didn't nail it. What you did instead was you uh, smuggled some things in under implausible uh, that were just weird to, to you personally. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're impossible. You didn't show anything was impossible. Patently untrue. Now, I won't leave it at that. I'm but, but notice, people on the internet take this sort of stuff on board. And I don't want you to be one of those. If you're an atheist... I, we have some really smart atheists that watch this channel, and I, I don't want you to be one of these people. I, I'm all for you putting together better arguments because I've, I'm not self-conscious about Christianity. I think it's going to stand up against the best arguments, and I'd like to put it up against the best arguments instead of the worst arguments. But I think some people on the Internet take something like this, and they say, see there? It, it, they may not even put it together as a flow of thought in their mind, but they're like saying, it, it, basically this is what they've said. If uh, Premise one, if something is weird, it's impossible. Premise two, Christianity is weird. Therefore, three, Christianity is impossible. And it just doesn't follow. Impossibility is different from bizarre. Impossibility is different from implausible. And this is like really simple logic. And, and we, But he's, slammed, he's just shattered the backboard, uh, dropped the mic, whatever you want to use with this. I mean, it, it boggles the mind. I'm going to point out how you can actually make this case using the Christian delusion. Christian delusion is divided into five parts. I'll talk about part two first. Uh, and that's why the Bible is not God's word. And there's a reason we break it down like this, and I'll point, out, point that out later. There's a chapter by Edward Babinski on the cosmology of the Bible. It's important to note that the Old Testament God, this is the Old Testament, the voice of God in quotations himself, speaks with the assumption routinely that the earth is flat and held up by four pillars. Now, if even God didn't know how the world was made, you can, be rest you can be fairly certain that the Bible was not written by God or by anyone who was in communication with him. This basic idea of water, there's this giant sea up in outer space. In fact, outer space is an ocean. And then there's this big metal firmament that God put to separate that ocean from the ocean below. And then the atmosphere is in between. The atmosphere, this, this big dome is held up by four pillars. That's the pillars of heaven. And then the earth is flat and held up by four pillars, which is the pillars of the earth. 
This is a common cosmology. It was believed, this is the structure of the universe as believed by all the neighbors of Israel when the Old Testament was written. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Sumerians. Babinski shows this, documents it extensively. They use the same metaphors, the same terminologies, the same concepts, everything went, worked in the same place. So when you see it in the Bible, you know this is just a product of its culture. This is not, this is not a, you know, an insightful... Yeah, or it's a communication to a particular culture using the paradigm that they would understand. We'll get to more of that in just a moment. That's not exactly the position that I necessarily hold, but... ...inspired text from the God of the universe that God who would certainly know that the earth was round and, and there weren't, wasn't, you know, outer space wasn't filled with water. Another point, uh, and this is something I won't go into in detail because I'd be preaching to the choir, but you know these things, uh, the Bible and modern scholarship. Modern oh, yeah, okay. So we'll get to this in just a moment. But first I want to respond to this idea that the Bible gives you a cosmology of the world that, at least in the Old Testament, uh, some would still say in the New Testament, but you, you have. And by the way, this is a realm where flat earthers and atheists agree. They agree that the Bible teaches this. Flat earthers believe, many of them, believe the Bible and believe it teaches this. Uh, at least some of the aspects of this. And atheists uh, don't believe the Bible, but believe that it does teach this. Um, and they're both wrong. <laughs> they're both wrong because, uh, first of all, it's relevant to point out that the vast majority of the places where uh, verses are used to support that cosmology are in poetic literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, places like that, um, or in dreams, um, or in prophetic utterances and things like that where there's imagery being used. And so these, this is a mistake of genre, is to think that um, if something is being said in a poetic way um, to communicate a point to certain people, that that means that it's a scientific lecture or treatise on the nature of the universe. So uh, that is a relevant point and one that I think bears pointing out. Uh, secondly, there are those people out there who will give you uh, an explanation of why even in those places it's not saying what Carrier's saying. But I'm not sure about whether I buy all the stuff they're saying. I, I just want to point out that it's often poetic. And we still say all kinds of things poetically that are not meant to be taken as philosophical or scientific treatise on our positions. And then lastly, I, I don't necessarily hold this, but I'm open to this, is the idea that, hey, the reason that it's mentioned that way is because that is what the people, as Carrier said, most of the people living in the region at the time thought about the way the world was structured. And so rather than catching them up on physics and quantum mechanics and uh, modern cosmological studies and all these kind of things, that wasn't really the point. We're trying to uh, form a people for God, and we're trying to teach them theological principles that are vastly more important. And so uh, we're going to meet them where they are. And I'm not going to make that case to you. I'm actually going to bring in, um, I'm actually going to bring in here, this is Michael Heiser talking about this very issue. God doesn't change the culture, clean it up first, and then say, now we can talk. He comes to people as they are, knowing what they know or what they don't know, and says, let's get something down here that you can understand. Not only you can understand, but that the people who read what you're going to produce, they'll understand it too because it's communicated in their language, in their worldview. They'll get it. What a novel idea. Because I, as God, am choosing to come to this place at this time in history to these people. That's God's decision. And now I'm going to start revealing who I am. 
God doesn't bother to, to clean up anybody's act. And if we just realize that, there are a lot of things in the Old Testament that unbelievers object to that you can really file under. Why are you being critical of, of a document where, you know, the Old Testament doesn't necessarily approve of a lot of these things. Right. They just are, because that was their culture. They just are. So why, you know, get apoplectic over it? God's revelation to Israel needed to be culturally decipherable. Now watch this. Watch this. They had to get it. They had to understand it. It also had to be culturally consistent. In other words, God couldn't fill the Old Testament with things that were foreign to the culture to whom he was communicating, or else they would go, what? What's up with that? I don't, I don't understand any of it. This is supposed to be revelation from God? Well, doesn't God know who I am? I don't get this stuff. No, in their original context, they, they get it. Because he, again, is choosing the time, the place, the circumstance, the people to communicate something to. So what uh, he wants to point out and he, is that God communicates to people where they are because it would completely sidetrack the whole operation if there was space taken to communicate all these sorts of things. Secondly, uh, later on he goes on to say, uh, what, what if... Um, what if Today was when God began to bring revelation to people. Uh, we understand a lot more about the way the universe works than uh, people in the ancient world did. But even Stephen Hawking, you know, if he were still living, if Stephen Hawking heard some of the things that God could reveal about way the, universe, the way the universe is, um, I mean, just think at how early we are in human history and how much more there is to discover and investigate. And we don't even have the technology to investigate it. But if God revealed all the stuff he could reveal that would answer all our questions about cosmology, Stephen Hawking couldn't understand it. He'd say, well, don't you understand? Here I am. I'm, I'm you know, at least thought of by many as one of the brightest human beings who's alive today, perhaps has ever lived. And yet I have no idea what you're communicating to me. It would be a completely inefficient enterprise. So these are things to bear in mind but it doesn't work too well for a lecture at an atheist convention. I mean, what he could do is he could break all that out and say, well, here's what the other side says. Here's what we say. I mean, that's what we do at our conferences, at our apologetics conferences, but more on that later. Okay, now I wanna, I want we're not gonna go through everything that he says hereafter, because what I want you to notice is that what, it's going, what is about to happen is that Richard Carrier is gonna go through, and I'm gonna link this video in the description so you can check it out and see for yourself, that what Richard Carrier begins to do here is he goes through a litany of reasons why Christianity, he thinks Christianity is either false or ridiculous um, or is just otherwise not defensible. But he never, act, he, does, he seldom actually makes much of a point and explains why it's so. What he does is he points to other people who have written articles or said this or wrote in this journal this or that or the other thing, which is fine. That's fine. Uh, you can do that. Now, I always try to actually not just point out where these things are. That's good for resources, but you can put that in the description of a video. You can put that in a handout that you give to people. You could put up a slide at the end that gives your bibliography. You could do all kinds of things like that. Um, I try to actually teach people something and, and, and spend my time on stage giving the best reasons to believe that a particular thing is true and some of the criticisms of it. What we get from Richard Carrier is he keeps making big, bold assertions, and they really are assertions, and then saying, and because this guy shows it's that way, because this guy demonstrates it, because that guy uh, wrote about it once. Well, great, but you're standing in front of us, Richard Carrier. 
you're supposed to be one of the champions of modern agnosticism and atheism. Why don't you give it to us? Why don't you tell us what these insights are? Why don't you break it down for us and explain it to us? This is really interesting because, as I say, it is the case that in most of your typical apologetics conferences, that's exactly what they do. That's exactly what they do. And what's interesting about it is you've got atheists out here sitting in the crowd. Now, I'm not saying that this was planned this way. Understand. I'm just saying this is what happens. You've got people out here sitting in the crowd that a lot of them are not ever going to buy Richard Carrier's book. Some of them are going to buy it and never read it. Some of them are going to buy it and read it. But that's not going to be a huge majority of the crowd. Uh, that's just the nature of conferences and people buying books. You know, you got a store there. There's something in us. We want to get that dopamine hit that you buy something and you were impressed. So you buy this book. It's like there's only five books out there. So I'm going to buy this book. And but you, but you end up never reading it. Some people are going to read it. But the most of what people what most people are going to get from a lecture like this and certainly online as it exists here as a YouTube video is what they're going to get is they're going to get what Richard Carrier says. And what they're going to hear is Richard Carrier said that this is the case, and he cited a really smart person who agrees with him. That's what they're going to hear. And then they can feel better about themselves, and then they can move on. Now, that's what does happen, and it's not just with atheists. It can happen with Christians at apologetics conferences, too. In fact, I want to give, um, I want to give uh, Matt Dillahunty's explanation. This is at a different atheist conference. And here he's talking about when he visited Austin, Texas. I think this is when he, he's talking about when he came to the Austin, Texas um, Unapologetics Conference put on by Texas Baptist. I was there. He sat in my lecture. So if he's talking about me somewhere in here, I don't know for sure. But he, but he's, he, uh, he came to that. And this is him talking about what he experienced in the breakout sessions. And despite being at a conference designed to teach this stuff, they don't seem to care, and the people who are trying to instruct them don't know how to talk to them. I sat through a couple of the instructional sessions. One of them, the instructor, completely talked over their heads, just assumed that everybody had an understanding of all the classical arguments for the existence of God, so here are their, you know, here's how you should present these. There's no thought behind it. There was not, we're gonna look at the Kalam cosmological argument and analyze why the first premise says everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. Now notice what we just said. Is this what Richard Carrier is doing from the atheist perspective? He's not, let's break down each of these uh, pieces, each of these reasons why. Let me show you why it is that I'm saying scholars uh, reject the archaeological defenses of the Bible. Let me show you why it is that they say that particular things are fairy tales. Let me show you why. Now, there's none of that, just look, here's what this scholar, here's what this guy says about it. Here's what that guy wrote about it. So feel good about that. Let's move on. And what the hell that means. And you know how we got that. None of that. It's just, hey, here's the argument. And for people who spent their lives being, sitting in churches and being surrounded by people who believe the same things that they believe, feels like you just got an awesome nugget of wisdom because you don't know any better. I remember standing in church. Now, wait a minute. Is this what's happening with, with Richard Carrier? There's a book out there. You may buy the book. You probably won't read the book. But he said a bunch of really smart things, and it's what I already believe anyway. And now there's this smart guy saying what I think, and he pointed to a scholar. I've never heard of that scholar, but he pointed to a scholar who wrote a paper once that confirms all of this. So, yeah, I feel better. Now let's go have drinks. Feeling a sense of elation, getting goosebumps. That's the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you know? because everybody around me just told me that was the Holy Spirit. 
Curiously, I get a similar sensation when I look at art or listen to music or have sex or take drugs, and yet we, uh, that's not the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is definitely against all that sex and drug stuff. There's another instructor that was clearly understood by everybody or almost everybody, but he didn't actually give them anything useful. He barely even gave them things that they could repeat. It was, it was very much, we're going to sit here and don't do this now. We're gonna sit here and you are the person at the podium and therefore we will just absorb everything that you say and feel better about ourselves without really thinking about it. I'm probably wrong on all kinds of things. Don't get me wrong, I'm happy to be up here. I'm also happy to be out there. Okay, I think he's done with the point I wanted to make. The point is that he's describing what happens in an unapologetics conference. It probably is happening in the room with him right now, and it probably happened with Richard Carrier, because what Richard Carrier is giving us is not a breakdown of the, the reasons that he thinks all these things are true. All we've really gotten so far is that stuff's weird, so it's impossible. And then here's a bunch of things that would show that the Bible's not true and trust these people that say so. But did we really get anything to tell us that it's actually delusional to believe? No. And what did the audience get? They laughed, they cooed, they, they heard a guy say some things. You see, there is a truth in what's being said by Matt Dillahunty here, but it's not a truth about Christian apologetics conferences. It's a truth about all conferences. <laughs> it's a truth about all conferences. And uh, secondly, if you're going to try to, what he says the apologist did wrong is exactly what Richard Carrier is doing. So let's go on back over to Richard Carrier. And we're going to skip ahead now at this point to the outsider's test of faith. Okay, let, let's, maybe he needs to set this up just a little bit. Even if they have really solid evidence and their arguments are completely sound. So if you ever wonder why atheists have to be vilified constantly by Christians, they're poisoning the well. They're trying to tell people atheists are bad people, therefore their arguments... Yeah, are so there is some value in what he's saying here, although he's saying it only from the atheist perspective. He, he talks about how when you're afraid of things, you uh, when there's fear, you'll actually, uh, you'll actually answer things more quickly and you'll trust a thing, whereas if, you're, if you've just given more time... You, you might not, and, and things like that. Well, that's important, that's true, but that doesn't mean that fear is not sometimes valid. Um, and so he says, well, you know, religious people make people afraid, afraid that you're going to go to hell or whatever. Um, yeah, well, the same could be true in the other direction. There are fears that, that lead people to be atheists, too. Uh, fears that I may waste my life on something that's not true. Fears that I won't be considered smart. Fears that I won't be accepted in a particular group. There's all kinds of uh, ways that this goes. Um, another thing that he mentioned, what was it he just said just then? Or there's something wrong with them and they're a bad person. Oh, yeah. He says that uh, this is really interesting. He says, you know, another thing that moves people and shouldn't, but it does, is if you think of someone as an untrustworthy person or an immoral person, a bad person, then you're less likely to believe them. And so that's why Christians are all the time talking about how immoral and awful atheists are, which is really strange because, again, among the sorts of people who would interact with Richard Carrier's books, who are Christians, the kind of Christians he would deal with, Christian apologists, people like that, they're all the time pointing out that, no, 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 atheists can be moral and ethical people from a human perspective. That's not the point. It's that you can't account for your morality. On the other hand, I do run into a lot of atheists 
who are pointing out the wicked things that Christians do in the name of religion. So again, not only I'm not sure is that not quite as valid from your end, maybe it is in the general public. I'll grant you, okay? But it's it's definitely goes both ways, all right? So, but, but again, does that mean anything about what's delusional? No. Then all their arguments can be ignored, even if they have really solid evidence and their arguments are completely sound. So if you ever wonder why atheists have to be vilified constantly by Christians, they're poisoning the well. They're trying to tell people atheists are... And if you ever wonder why it is that Christians are vilified by atheists, they're poisoning the well. ...bad people, therefore their arguments have to be bad as well. They're bad people, and so their arguments have to be ignored. That's a fallacy. It's irrational. But it's psychologically yes. innate. These are problems. Nevertheless, we have this outsider test for faith. We can prove that it's a rational way to go. You must test your own religious claims by, and texts by the same standards. So why don't they? The response that John Loftus has gotten, and he actually presented this argument at a conference of evangelical philosophers, uh, and they all wrote responses, and his chapter in this book is a response to their responses. And basically, you can divide the responses into two things, uh, two different ways of responding. And one is, we don't have to test our faith by the same standards we test others. Full stop. Hypocrisy rocks. That's one. That's patently irrational. So that, that's, that's like delusion rearing its ugly head full on. I mean, you, you, you might as well just tattoo delusional right on your forehead if you're going to say that. Because uh, that, that's the mantra of a delusional person. And the second one is that our religion passes the outsider test because we have all this awesome evidence. Uh, and then, of course, that's what the rest of the book shows is not the case. Oh, now, now notice, okay. So why don't they? Whoops. So first of all, did he, did he address that? I mean, that was the salient point. The salient point was we have all this great evidence, and now Richard Carey is going to show us that we don't have all this great evidence. No, that's what the rest of the book's about. Oh, okay, well, that's check mark on that, you know. Uh, no, you need to actually show us that. Now, granted, this lecture is not about whether or not Christianity is true. However, it is, a, it is about whether religious people, Christian people, are delusional. And part of making the case that we're delusional is that what we believe is impossible. Not just implausible, but impossible. He put impossibility. Uh, so if that's the case, then you, as a part of this case you're making, need to demonstrate that. But you don't. You offload that to uh, John Loftus or whoever else wrote a book. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, but let's look at this, the outsider test for faith. So the idea is here, you, you ought to look at other religious claims and texts and test them by the same standards, your own, by the same standards you apply to other religions. And if your religious religions claims and texts are far, fair no better, then your religion is just as false as theirs is. Okay, now, now notice something here. First of all, in the second statement here, the second statement here is just false. And I'm judging this sentence by the same standards I judge all sentences, <laughs> my own sentences. Um, if your religious religions claims text fare no better, then your religion is just as false as theirs. No, it means they're not as highly evidenced. All right. Now, I, I'm not I don't think I'm in this boat, but you can't just say because my because I'm not able to defend my position because it doesn't pass my tests, my standards, whereas that one does. It may mean I have no reason to believe it, but it doesn't mean it's false. I mean, isn't this the very reason why atheists are always telling me? that I'm not saying there is no God. I'm just saying I lack a belief in God, right? Isn't that what you're doing? Isn't that what you're saying? Well, this flies in the face of it. This is just, again, really bad 
really just bad logic. But all right, let's look at the first statement. You must test your own religious claims and texts by the same standards you apply to other religions. And the kind of Christians that Richard Carrier interacts with academically and at these conferences or whatever who are Christian apologists or at least interested in Christian apologetics, that's what they do. They test their cl- they test their own religious claims the same way they test other. Now, we all have biases, and we have to work to limit those biases. So we admit that. But we do try to apply those same tests. Did it ever cross your mind that perhaps the reason we're Christians is because, uh, that we remain Christians, is because we did that and we found that Christianity is the most defensible explanation of the nature of reality? That's me. And you don't have to believe me. You can roll your eyes. You can say whatever you want. And I'm happy to admit I didn't initially become a Christian because of the evidence. However, I am still a Christian because I believe that Christianity is the most defensible worldview. So uh, the rest of the book would show me why I'm wrong, but I didn't get the rest of the book, even though giving those answers would have been integral to his making the case that uh, Christianity is a delusion. So, you know, we're going to stop looking at him there, but I just think it's important to consider the logic that goes into a lecture like this. Uh, Demonstrably, this is not an opinion-based thing. This is not I'm confused or missing something. Demonstrably. Richard Carrier's own criteria for what makes something delusional shows that Christianity, in its milder or majorly annoying forms to him, are not delusions. They're mildly and majorly annoying to Richard Carrier, but they're not delusions. He didn't even demonstrate to me that Zalmoxism is a delusion. Uh, And we saw again this continued that's weird, and Christianity strikes me as weird. Therefore, it's impossible to be true. The, the number three of his, of, his, of his thing. And then we saw a bunch of offloading to other scholars that he didn't give here. So what we have in this lecture, and, I, and this is so emblematic. This is, again, we have some really smart skeptics that are on this channel. Thank you. But this is so emblematic of what we get so often on YouTube, which is just simply appealing to their own base, just getting the amens from the crowd, maybe selling a few books. And I'm not saying he's in it for the money, but just selling some books, getting the amens, doing the conference, then let's go out for drinks. That's what I got from this. But held up to actual scrutiny doesn't doesn't fare very well. Well, listen, if you would like to take an insider test, if you'd like to know that Christianity is true, uh, then I, I'd love to talk to you about that. You can email me at BraxHunter, B-R-A-X-H-U-N-T-E-R, at yahoo.com, and I'd be happy to correspond with you there. And listen, uh, the Bible says that you must repent. That means turn from your life without Jesus to a life with Jesus. Um, turn from your sin, not because you're a bad person, but because we, we've all done things that dishonor God, and Jesus died for that purpose, uh, to forgive us of our sins. Um, we're to, if you, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth and believe, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you do that, I, I think it's appropriate to tell the Lord in prayer that you want to do that. And I'd love to talk to you about it because there are steps that you can take going forward. Thanks for listening. And I, I hope you'll check out uh, some of the other great apologetics channels out there on YouTube. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.